I realized that it's uh, never too late. It's never too late to uh, let Jesus into your heart. Um, when you think that there's just no other way, and you think that it's your own, and you think that um, that you're just going to go down the wrong, you know, that it's going to end up into death, or you killing somebody, or doing some kind of harm. There's always hope. There's you just got to, God is there with you all the time. He's there with you now, no matter what you're going through. Uh, he sometimes he puts you in those positions. Um, God puts you in those positions, even though you're thinking that you're at the bottom of the barrel, you're still doing something that God wants you to do. So you have to, you have to open your ears and open your eyes and your heart and, uh, and ask, just let them know that, uh, you understand he's there for you, that you're going through this and that, uh, it's never too late. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon podcast with me, your host, Michi Day. Today, we have a great guest that I always wanted to interview, but we always kept missing each other. Thankfully, today, we were able to meet. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Fernando Torres, and boy, does he have a story about being once behind bars with no hope of ever getting out. This is one story made for TV because it's absolutely amazing. Let's welcome him now. Welcome, Fernando. How are you today? I'm doing good, Michi. Thank you for uh, having me here on your show, and I'm hoping I could share my story and that it'll help others. That's good. That's why I have you on here, because your story is quite just phenomenal. So why don't you tell our guests today just a little bit about yourself, what you want to share with the audience about who you are, first of all? I started an early life of crime, probably at around age eight. And it continued until age 13, 14. I got locked up in the Eastern Allen School for Boys, which is Back in the 70s, it was called Wales. And um, then I got out, and 10 months later, I ended up uh, committing uh, more serious crimes and was sentenced to two life sentences uh, behind bars and uh, basically the rest of my life at the age of 16. I was the only juvenile life juvenile that was uh, waived into adult court uh, at that time in, in that year, 1981. And I basically was released uh, 42 years later with the blessings of the Lord. But nobody expected me to ever get out. While incarcerated, I continued my, uh, what do you say, misbehavior. I, uh, I mm-hmm. thought that if I came into the system, I would uh, either end up at that young age, end up becoming a, a victim of the of the system because it's almost impossible to be good in the place where there's all bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I ended up feeling that if I built a reputation, my my time would become simpler. And in building that reputation, I had to keep doing things that would make people fear me. In 1983, which was my first uh, conduct reports I got there, uh, I ended up being a leader of uh, a prison uprising 
where 15 staff hostages were taken and uh, several buildings were destroyed, uh, millions of dollars in damage. And it continued from there. I, I probably have over 17 assaults on staff and and numerous and numerous on fellow inmates. I ended up getting transferred from state to state, uh, penitentiary to penitentiary, uh, supermax to supermax. Uh, and at one point, uh, Jesus Christ came into my life and that changed the whole, the whole picture because I didn't believe that anything could change me. But he came, he came into my life and that was it. Then I came in with a third grade education level. And after Jesus came in, he directed me to get an education. And I needed that because I, I thought I knew it all. And I was probably, I was just stupid. I realized that I was probably one of the stupidest people in the system. And I couldn't really read and write. And Lord took me through getting my ABE, which is adult basic education. He ended up giving me the GED. And from there on, I ended up enrolling in the college programs, pre-college programs to see if I had it in me. And with prayer and God's help, I did get into a, a college program that was sponsored by St. Mary College, where the professors would come in, and uh, University of Kansas City. And from there, I got my associate's degree, and then I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in psychology with a, a 3.51 average. And I'm only 21 semester hours away from two more majors is sociology and a bachelor of science in business administration. Wow. Uh, when I got out, when I got out, I ended up going to Marquette uh, University for a bit, but I had to pull out because the transitioning in itself after all those years in prison, uh, basically coming from a cave man to a sci-fi uh, world. Yeah. Uh, it's just, just so, so stressful and uh, trying to take care of my mother at the same time with all the things that were going on. I fell into a world of problems and that's basically where I'm at. So I had to pull off from school temporarily. I'm hoping to go back within a, within maybe next summer and let's, you know, see what's going on from there. Okay. Wow. You, you, again, like I, I told my guests when I first introduced you, you have an incredible story and to go in so young and this is just telling people that no matter the background or the cases or it may look impossible it is possible and your case you had two life sentences and you were also committing crimes while you were behind bars i mean very serious offenses where yeah even Everybody would say the same thing, just like you just did. Well, we don't see through looking at the circumstances. It doesn't look like a person could change just by you saying that that gives a lot of people hope because a lot of times we say that so easily that it is no way a person can change. And I'm sitting here and meeting you and listening to your story. I can't say that anymore. You know, this, I hope that people are getting in the audience that's listening, that there is hope. And let's talk about a little bit, because you mentioned you didn't have hope. Your your hope was only, it seems like, making your reputation more fierce so people can fear you. So you thought you could have an easier time. Is that why you had that sort of thinking? Oh, yes, yes, because... uh 
being adult institutions aren't made for for kids. Mm-hmm. I just I want to make it clear because uh, you know you just you know kid doesn't you know you make a mistake you you might take something away from them or you might punish them with something bit but you don't stick them in a cage with a bunch of adults who are repeat violent offenders and violent in themselves. And so by putting kids in that system, all you're doing is breeding more hate and more violence. And and that's what happened to me because I had to defend myself almost weekly in that Milwaukee County Jail. In the old days, it was 20-man pods and one person ran the pod. And, and to get that position, you had to, you had to basically take it. And so whatever that person said, what was going on? So, yeah, I didn't I I didn't have much hope. I didn't think I was ever getting out. I didn't have no money. My family didn't have no money, and that's just where I I kept on going. And as since I was a a fighter, since I was my family came from a fighting background, and I was boxing since I was eight years old, I was able to defend myself weekly. And I was just I believe that it was just God preparing me for this path in life. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. as it was, uh, he was there all the time for me. I just didn't realize it till maybe I was uh, 24, 25 years old that something snapped in my mind that, uh, you know, that I ended up getting uh, empathy mm-hmm. and, and the conscience and, and feeling and, and I got tired of hurting my mother because everything you do hurts your family. So even though there was times where you know, I hated staff or I hated an inmate. I always started thinking that it's not about how much I hate that individual. It's about how much I love my family. And, and, and that's how it it started, you know, you know, how much do you love your family? It's, you know, even if, you know, somebody gets killed or somebody gets hurt in your family and you want to get revenge, you always, you have to say in your mind, not how much I hate this person, but how much you love your family. I like that uh, contrast. That's a good contrast. So you're saying before you didn't have that sort of, um, like you said, empathy or conscience. It wasn't really, it wasn't resonating with you. So you were just, you were just responding, reacting. Okay. Hmm. And um, since I wasn't going to school, which is another major factor, Uh I would go into the front door and I'd come out the back door. So being a person without no education, especially a young person without any kind of education, your your brain is just not working, uh, functioning, you know, to a moral society. Your mother's working all the time. My dad left. So nobody's around, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. Other family members are taking care of their kids. So I'm on the streets and all my friends are in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, They're all criminals, uh, ex uh, violent criminals on the run from the law from different states for murders and armed robberies, prostitutes. Those are the people that I hung with at that young age. And, and, and I'm not to mention game bangers. You know, I was game banging at the early age. So they're all a negative factor. Mm. And so there was just, you know, there was just no way for me to get out of that. And even though I had been raised in the church environment, I wasn't getting it. Right. Cause you, you know, that was really those type of people that really was your family. If you're hanging around and stuff, though, as much as you were and you felt uh, affiliation, that's really what a family is. And it really makes sense that you did just navigate 
to that sort of behavior and stuff. So you said that you had this kind of like encounter with Christ and you started having a conscience, like thinking about your mother. Do you, is there any kind of um, anything you can think of, like what happened that it just snapped in? Was it something you heard um, or? Yeah, it will. Um, you know, I, I got shipped all across the country because of my behavior. Prisons couldn't handle me. I had too much control. Um, um, so I was sent from state to state. So I ended up experiencing a variety of, of uh circumstances because every state and every prison is different. Right. Some are more mellow, some are more violent. Well, I ended up getting sent up to the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, and it was a violent system. You would get maybe 30 to 60 stabbings a year, three to six murders a year. Mm-hmm. And entering that prison, entering that prison as we came in off that chain gang, off that bus, handcuffed, we, you know, we experienced a situation where guys hollering for help. And when we look over to our right, there he is at the gate uh, in kitchen whites, all full of blood. So um, that environment, because it was a high, more higher respect environment, uh, I fell into. And so you would hear, you would see and you would hear violence almost, almost daily. And, uh, and I'd wake up two or three in the morning listening to somebody getting killed by their celly. And when you hear that first scream, I discovered is when you hear the first scream, um, I found out through individuals that, that had lived through the experiences that by the time they screamed, um, they had already been stabbed two or three times while they were sleeping. Um, and so this one time, and I used to just, you know, you know, I would hear that and I would, I'd just say, oh, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a rat, he's this or that, you know. So it didn't bother me and I had to go right back to bed. But this one experience I had was because an old Sully of mine had told on someone and I heard that he was going to be killed. And his cell, his new cell was almost right above mine. And about two or three in the morning, I woke up from that scream. And this time I didn't just fall asleep and, and you know, I started shaking. I, I, uh, I, I had to get up out of the bed. I started crying. I started feeling for him because the streams continued and continued. And I ended up being crawling next to uh, my, my commode and, and, and asking the Lord at that moment and saying, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that I didn't want to be. Part of this violence anymore. I didn't want to be. I didn't want to harm someone anymore. I didn't want to be killed. I didn't want to kill somebody anymore. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt my mother anymore. And I asked the Lord at that moment to take control of my life. And uh, he did. He revealed himself to me and uh, he said he was here all the time. He was just waiting. And that was the moment that, uh, that was the moment that uh, everything changed for me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the story with us because we don't understand. A lot of us don't understand. And then 
now because we um some of us we don't understand about why so violent why how could someone do that but it's like you don't have any kind of conscience or empathy but it seemed like right at that time then you because you knew the person and that makes a difference and I believe like you said the Lord has been there all the time working on you and it gives us a better insight to a person and what's going on and just having um just being having empathy because a lot of people don't understand and you sharing that really intimate and touching story really reveals a lot about what goes on so you said after that you you just didn't want to be a part of it anymore and I just feel your I feel your um your pain right there because my heart just goes Mm -hmm. out to you at this point just listening to that so after that you things started to change for you after that moment you yes uh yeah um at that moment I was uh you know when when I had asked God for that thing. I visioned, or I visioned how he was sending messages. He was sending me messages where I I visioned all the people that I was harming in my life that I had harmed. Mm -hmm. And, and that I was, it just everything, every crime I committed, everything that I did wrong, everything came through my mind. It was like I was being judged at that moment. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I seen that, and then I just said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna harm anybody else. And I said that I'm not gonna harm my mother anymore because she was the most important person in my life then and today. And um, and from there on in, I uh, I had a really good job, one of the best jobs uh, in the in the in the U.S. penitentiary, and I'm making you know three or four hundred dollars a month, and that's a lot of money in yes. the prison environment. And well, um, what job was that? I worked as a warehouse. Uh, uh, forklift operator and instructor, and he had uh, he called it the uh, um, Unicor, which is a uh, industry for the uh, the federal system, okay. and and it was uh, a big factory there. It was one of the biggest factories in this in the federal system. It hired almost 800 people. It had four floors, uh, three furniture floors that made all the furniture for the courts for the U.S. military, uh, textile. Uh, print shop three three uh, shifts and the big warehouse and I worked in that warehouse oh. and um, I ended up becoming one of the lead supervisors there I had maybe 10 guys working for me at the time and um, <laughs> and then I ended up uh, but that you know it, the direction the Lord gave me was to quit that to leave that money to not think the money was important and to get my head right so he directed me to go to uh, back to school because again I came in with a third grade education and I didn't really write well at all. I knew that uh, capital went in the, on the first part of the sentence and a period at the end. So when I wrote a letter, it was you know the capital and the period at the end of the letter and no punctuation in between that <laughs> one long sentence and and some you know i read after years and years later i read some of the letters that i had written when i first came into the system and i couldn't even understand what i was saying to people mm-hmm. so if i didn't call them and explain some of the things that i was saying 
they didn't understand my letters, but here I thought I was writing a masterpiece. <laughs> but, you know, we <laughs> and, all uh, think that. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. So then, uh, so then the Lord directed me to go to school, so I did that. And uh, and I continued it. And, uh, you know, I took a job cleaning ashtrays and cleaning the phone booths and little things like that. It only gave me $20 a month. and uh, But I continued to study. You made, you made a good, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that, you made a great point right there that sometimes you have to sacrifice stuff to move mm -hmm. ahead, even though it doesn't seem like you're moving ahead, but you really are, you, you listen to God and it showed, you know, a lot of people don't want to follow directions and that's a big deal with anybody. You have to learn how to follow and listen to God and follow his directions and do what he says. So what happened after that? You went back to school. Well, I, uh, you know, I went all the way through and got my AB, my GED. I had to quit my job. I, I sat down with my foreman at the prison who was, uh, was the officer, uh, Sergeant Bruce Smith. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up becoming pretty close. And I said, listen, man, I got to quit this job. And, uh, God's telling me, I know this sounds weird, but God's telling me I got to go to school. And he backed me. He says, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll give you your job back. So, so well, later on, I finished all that and, and continued and got into the college program and ended up, uh, was luckily because, uh, oh, I also had to confront my uh, fellow gang associates because you just can't uh, exit really? uh, mm -hmm. the gang lifestyle. And there's some there's from like in today's world you got people jumping from one group to the other group uh infiltrating or or whatever and um it, you couldn't just do that i mean i've seen gang fights in the prisons for people that uh did that and you know right there in 15 10 15 minutes you'd see five, three or four or five people get killed and 30 people stand all because one guy switched to the other side i like or that it's you hard to get out. I like that you mentioned that right along with that you were leaving your job, you had to talk to your foreman. You were leaving and then you put together here. Now you say you were leaving the gang and you had to talk to that foreman as well. So what, how did you, we know how you could exit the, the job and say, Oh, you can have your job back if you wanted did the, did the gang form and said it too? If you don't work out, you can always well, come back here. So, what did yeah, you say? Well, see, I was, I was, I moved up in rank in the gang, and okay. um, so I was a higher up. I was, I, I was, you call it the shot caller for okay. most of these people. So they look up to you, and and for you to just say, "I'm not doing this no more," is a slap in the disrespect of all the people that have been doing things for you at your direction and then they come and say, I'm not doing this no more. So I had to say that I needed to get an education um, because in order to do what we're doing, we have to do things in the smarter way. <laughs> that's and, what you said to him? Right. That's what I told him. <laughs> and I, because I knew, I knew the results. If I would just say, I'm not doing this no more. You guys are all full of shit. I was full of shit. This ain't the life. It just so I had to say it, and and I try to encourage other people because see, in this in the system, there weren't any Latinos or Hispanic inmates, uh, 
going through the education system because at any moment, like say the Mexican mob, uh, Texas syndicate, the uh, um, the Aryans, you, you couldn't you just say, you know, well, I'm going to go to school because at any moment you could be called and you have to be out in the yard or you have to be wherever you have to be and you, you wouldn't graduate anyway. So because there would be a big fight and everybody gets locked up and people pick up more time or they die and and you go to supermasses. So education, because it's a, a long process, you know, college is not, uh, depending on how many courses you take a semester, it's four to five years, six years. It took me almost six years to uh, graduate. But they wouldn't, if you're in the game, you just can't do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And you would never, you never complete it. And what's the sense of going to school and doing the things that you need to do to get your life in order if you're going to be come back and just be part of a game again? Because there's only two places where you're heading as a game member. One is the grave or in prison. It's just the way it is. Nobody survives for years and years out there being a game member and not being part of of either the, either the death or either the prison environment. Oh, okay. So, so I was what I was trying to do is saying we need to change our mentality. We need to be smarter, even though we were lots, uh, we were street smart, we were prison smart. Mm-hmm. I was telling them that we need to be smarter than that. We need to be able to learn about money, about finances, about other things, and not just about enjoying what we have for the moment. We needed to grow. So that was part of me, what I was telling them. And that's, allowed me to get in at least into the system. So I was able to give up my position, which they knew that you just don't give up that position to someone else. And as time went on, maybe after I graduated, I got my first associate's degree. I came back and I, uh, even though I was part of that environment, they gave me, I was the only Hispanic going, trying to get an education in that system at the time. So, in fact, I'm the only Hispanic that's gotten a degree and graduated honors out of the entire Wisconsin DOC, and the only one that did that in the federal system there in Leavenworth, Kansas. Wow. Um, so it was, it was a, a big thing, and they respected that. And because I was doing it and they weren't, they respected that. And once I got that different type of respect from them, and, of course, the Lord's protection, I was able to come and say, hey, I'm going a different life. I've seen a, I've seen a brighter light, and this isn't going to be for me no more. Um, I put in my years. I put in over 20-some years at the time. Uh, I was respected through the system because, you know, of the things that I did in my past to get that reputation. And um, I got the blessing. And so I was able to walk away from it. But they always came to me for advice. And then I always gave them the advice that Jesus Christ would give me, you know? Mm-hmm. And in that, I was able to mediate. I was like an ambassador. I was so respected after I graduated in the system there that I was able to go from one group to the other because everything is segregated in the, in the federal system. The weight areas, the rec yard area, the child hall area, everybody has their sections. Okay. And you just can't, you just can't walk into one section and sit in somebody else's section. They're in child. You're gonna get up, or they're gonna 
they're going to do something to you. It's just the way it goes. But I was able to do that. And so I ended up meeting a lot of the political prisoners uh, from the, from the uh, Leonard Peltier to uh, Flan members. Um, that's the Puerto Rican Liberation uh, Independence Fighters. And so I was able to go from one group to the other. If it was from California or Washington, it didn't matter. I was able to go from one group to the other as a mediator and help individuals resolve conflicts. If it was for money, if it was for disrespect, because in, in that system with so much structure that um, if you violate that structure, and this happens often, you're hurt. The gangs are hurting more of their own people than they are the the opposition because of the structure. So, um, so if somebody violates something, like somebody got he he went and got a debt, or he went and used certain drugs. Um, and he was going to get violated or he didn't pay his debt. And the other group is saying he's got to pay his debt or something's going to happen to him. And then often that causes a protection or it causes a big major game fight. They'll say, no, we're going to meet in the yard. So I was able to intervene in a lot of those things and save people's lives. And, you know, just, it was just God moving me around in, in, in a certain way mm-hmm. without, um, my getting harmed hmm. you know so so how I, there was nobody else there was nobody else doing it and god put me in that position maybe through it was all planned <laughs> yeah god that planned. was well orchestrated i must say so is that what led you to get out of how so you were doing no. this for a while you were mediating so what happened right. after you right. were mediating what what was next well, I was I was in the federal system for 13 years at Leavenworth, Kansas, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, and I and that, let me tell you that when I was first in the system, I couldn't go 30 days without a conduct report, without mm-hmm. an assault, without uh, doing something violent. And here, after I started going to school, after God came back into my life, I ended up doing 13 years without a conduct report. Wow! Which is which is almost impossible at the time especially in the environment I was in. Mm-hmm. And then because I'm from Wisconsin, I'm not a federal prisoner. Um, they built the Supermax prison here. And so what they did, which is what Governor Thompson did at the time, because he built a Supermax prison in Wisconsin where they didn't really need one. They needed to put people in there to show that this is why we built this prison. So he ended up collecting inmates throughout the states that were that were contracted out because of their violent behavior in the past and bringing them back and putting them into the supermax and things and then putting our stories out there, our violent stories out there and says, this is why we need this prison. Mm-hmm. But when they actually did a study of it, they discovered that only maybe eight or 10 people, including me, belonged in that environment. However, they didn't realize of what we were doing in the past, what we, how we changed, how we were not misbehaving, how we went and got an education, how we were going, we were going to, uh, how we found, a, a, how we believed in the creator. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't take those things into consideration and continued to punish us here in Wisconsin by sticking us in the supermax. Some of my friends who were doing fine never did years, eight, 10 15 years in that supermax prison mm-hmm. and being 
transferred from say to say, including me. I ended up going back there. But then I was blessed because I met so many good people in the federal system that they started contacting legislatures and other people and they wrote to the warden there in that facility in the Department of Corrections and say, if it's true about Mr. Torres's uh, 13 years of clear conduct and educational status, uh, it's a violation of the stated intent for that facility. So mm-hmm. after these letters hit, I was out within a week. And not only was I out, I was transferred to a medium facility. Wow. From, from a supermax prison, which was unheard of. And when I got down there, the white shirts were saying, how did you get down here? You don't belong down here. I said, you know, go talk to your boss. Because it was all Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It just, and then from there on, because of my past and because I had so many assault on staff, I would be at one facility and they'd find out I was there and they'd put in what they called us SPN, which was that uh, they didn't feel safe with my being at that facility. And after two or three months, I just kept getting transferred from one facility to the other until I ended up in, uh, at the Oshkosh Correctional Institution, another, the biggest institution in Wisconsin, but about a little over 2,000 inmates. But there they gave me an opportunity and uh, and I did real well. And uh, hmm. it took, you know, they just didn't, you go to the pro board and they didn't appreciate any of the change you made. All they look at is what's written in black and white and what was in there in the past. And one day the administration changed. Uh, this wonderful person uh, uh, out of Racine, uh, Mr. Tate, uh, came into office and he learned about how the the system had changed under uh, Governor Tommy Thompson's rule mm-hmm. and how he how he tripled the system, how he how he manipulated programs and and created these PRC reviews to contradict with the parole reviews where they would just throw the blame on each other and inmates weren't moving. They just stagnated and built the population from 4,000 inmates when I came in mm-hmm. to over 20-something inmates. And minorities, specifically Hispanics, Natives, and, and African-Americans, didn't uh, didn't move. They stagnated. And if you had a life sentence, you weren't getting out. It was very few. It went from maybe 17 to 23 individuals a year getting out to zero or one or two. And now when Mr. Tate came in, he realized that he learned about that. He educated himself and he started looking at people's records and God's blessing. He looked at my record and on his own, um, released me. And I didn't even know I was getting released until that day. I got a phone call from a PO and we were trying to figure out why I was talking to him. <laughs> and and she says, oh, you didn't hear? I said, I didn't hear what? I'm not going to ever see you. Why are you going through all this stuff with me? And she <laughs> said, you didn't hear? And I said, no, I didn't hear what? She says, well, Mr. Tate gave you an office grant, which meant that he released me. And uh, they told me it was going to be 30 to 60 days, and it all happened within what, two days. What is it called again? A office? An office grant. Office, office grant. That were office grant. grant. That is Okay. Yeah, that's where they, the chairperson had reviewed your record in the past, reviewed again, and listened to your uh, parole uh, interview, 
maybe even took a recommendation here and there because they were trying to send me the minimum for quite a few years. In 2008, 2009, Scott Walker came in, took all that away, increased my parole deferments by 100%. No reason at all. I did it to a lot of inmates. And then, um, so it wasn't about what you did and how much you changed. It was about politics. And, and then, um, so this individual, he looked at the paperwork. He said, man, I'm going to send this guy the minimum. They tried again. The administration wouldn't send me. He got frustrated with them and said, you know what? I'm letting you go. And so again, it was all God's blessing because nobody expected it. I didn't expect it. My family didn't expect it. None of the administration expected it. When they heard it, they were, their heads were twisted. Well, and that is, that is wonderful. Cause I was hoping you would get to that point because it's, we've heard of, you know, pardons. We heard of, what do you call it? Um, What's the word? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, parole. Penalties, pardon. Penalties. Yeah. But not this office grant so you're saying it's another way out for inmates and it's called an office grant right it was uh if if you're under the old law the old old law okay the the, yeah the chairperson has the power to review your record without having to see you uh or listen to you you can review your record and make a determination if it's uh safe and proper to release you into the community. And he did that for quite a few people. He he, okay. uh, he, he felt that people earned it mm-hmm. and was able to uh, was able to make a decision to safely that you didn't belong, that corrections couldn't do anything else for you to, to improve you, and that you would be a safe individual to release. And it, is he's the chairperson of what again? He was the chairperson of the Wisconsin Parole Commission. All the chairperson of that board. He's he's the top person, and then you got three or four individuals that uh, it used to be six individuals, but uh, uh, Scott Walker cut that down because he wasn't planning on paroling anyone. And under his administration, it basically went from you know seventeen disorders to zero almost. So, do you know? I would probably have to look this up. Do you know what's the years? What's the old law? What are, what are those years? Um, it would be under the old law would be under before truth and sentencing. So when truth and sentencing came out in uh, 2000. In so t- if you were sentenced before that and you were eligible for parole, unless uh, because there was also a change in the life sentences category where they could sentence you to life without parole or, or life with parole. So, um, you know, Tommy Thompson changed also the clemency commission where before you could petition the clemency commission every year, two years and asking them for a hearing to be released. And he changed that to trying to get permission to petition and, and basically just locked the door on everybody because they would, they'd have an extraordinary circumstance, uh, criteria but wouldn't tell you what that is. And that basically shut the door on everybody. And again, he increased the prison population by, you know, two or 300% maybe. It just, and that was about money. Stopped. And that was about money. Yeah. 
they were just knocking people off. But you know, but it was also they knew that if you look at the prison system back then, it was basically almost balanced. And then today, it's almost minority African Americans, Hispanic, and Native Americans. You know, so okay. it it's it's uh you know it's <laughs> it's still that way. Yeah. Well, this is quite a a lot of information. I'm glad that I got a chance to talk to you about this and talk about this. You know, a, a different way a person can get out besides being pardoned or paroled. Um, this is another avenue for them to use if they're under the old law. So, and I, I definitely believe that we should be looking at records while they're in. And if it was someone like what you were doing, we definitely should be reviewing this because we, we want to reward people for their behavior when it's changed, especially with everything that you were doing. I'm pretty sure it's, it's other people in there too that's doing it. Not as many probably, but that is wonderful. We need to reward people for their behavior changes. So that is pretty much it for our session today this episode also why i'm so glad to have you is there any last thing you want to say to the audience about the change you made and how this whole process and how you didn't even know how god was going to just interact for you and release you that i know you're encouraging a lot of people that there is hope and there is reward for following what the Lord is telling you to do is, which is to seek him and he will provide for you. I realized that it's, uh, never too late. It's never too late to, uh, let Jesus into your heart. Um, when you think that there's just no other way and you think that it's your own and you think that, um, that you're just going to go down the wrong you know, that it's going to end up into death or you killing somebody or doing some kind of harm. There's always hope. There's just got to, God is there with you all the time. He's there with you now, no matter what you're going through. Uh, he sometimes, he puts you in those positions for, like me, you know, if I had not been into the riot, people would have lost their lives because I saved people's lives during that riot. Uh, put me into all these different states where I intervene and help people. Uh, change their lives and uh, save lives. Um, God puts you in those positions, even though you're thinking that you're at the bottom of the barrel. You're still doing something that God wants you to do. So you have to you have to open your ears and open your eyes and your heart and uh, and ask. Just let them know that uh, you understand He's there for you. That you're going through this and that. Uh, it's never too late. Is there anything else you want to leave with our audience today before we end the show? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, that he always, uh, just come back, just come back to him. That is a great statement. And I thank you so much that when you just come to the end of yourself, that's why I look at it, where you understand and come to that realization that you cannot do it alone and come to him and honestly ask, you will see those changes made. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show, Fernando. It's been quite 
the story and I wanted people to hear it, especially, you know, mothers and siblings, people that's inside themselves to know that there's always hope. And even though it does not look like it. Thank you again for joining me, Fernando. Thank you everyone for listening. May you have a week filled with blessings and take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the show. For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonerspardon.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.